I think we just inherently are curious. And I think that's really what it gets down to is that we just have this curiosity about life, about the universe, about humanity. That's why we're doing this podcast to begin with. One of my favorite favorite photographers who's actually been on the podcast, her name is Sig Harvey. She said that as photographers, our currency is time. Mm. And and I love that. That's a great way of looking at it. Yeah. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Photo Untaken with me, Alan Clark. On today's episode, we have Dr. Jennifer Lavasser. She is the author of Through Astronaut Eyes from Purdue University Press, and she is from the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian. She's the curator in charge over Space Shuttle Discovery all of the cameras of NASA and the chronographs you see the astronauts wearing on their arms. What a lot of responsibility for one person to have. She reveals a lot of mind-blowing things, not just to me, but to all of us about the cameras and how hard this was for them to be able to take photographs. You got to remember, this is back when they were still shooting film and using manual focus. (laughs) You've seen Apollo 13, the movie, and you know that there's just so much they have to do for safety all the things they have to remember because they're also scientists. Oh yeah. You're also a photographer. And so we talk about this on today's episode and it just blows my mind. All of the things that they had to do to make this happen. I'm just so excited to have her on today's episode of the photo and taken. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is a lot of fun. I have my dream job, but it sounds like you have your dream job too. Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to inspire somebody to be interested in what I do in the museum and just never really know when somebody's listening and has some connection to something. I have a bit of an unconventional path to where I got. So it's always fun to tell the story. Where did your love of history first start? How did that happen? I grew up in southeastern Michigan and as a kid would go on field trips to different places. So my grandparents lived very close to what is now called the Henry Ford Museum in Greenfield Village. And so either through going on field trips or going as part of just a family group because it was so close to my grandparents' home, I'd be there sometimes three, four times a year. It was an hour away from home, but it was really close to my grandparents' place. And so I just got the opportunity to walk around there and it gave me an opportunity to think about history. I think one of the things that was really valuable about it is really, it was a great bonding experience with my grandfather. Mm. Neither side of my family really talked very much about their family history, but mm-hmm. we did talk about history as an idea. So we would go around the museum, my grandfather and I, and he would point to things like farming instruments, think mm. farming machinery, and tell me, we used to have this out on my uncle's farm or my family's farm out in southeastern Michigan. And it just made me realize that there's this connection, especially through objects. And so that Mm. connection to the idea of a museum, at least, goes all the way back to when I was just really small. And then I think over the course of time, either through popular culture or watching a lot of PBS as a kid, I got interested in the idea of history. We traveled a lot when I was young. And so it just developed over time that seeing these places and understanding them as having a sort of rich history, whether it be Native American history or the sort of westward movement of Europeans Mm. across the continent, it was always really interesting to me. 
who did you dream about being when you were a child, you know, because of history? I dreamed about things that I couldn't possibly have been connected to. I think even as a child, I would have actual dreams and they were about the past. And so growing up, there were three particular historical moments that I was most fascinated by. I was always fascinated by the assassination of John F. Kennedy and his presidency. Mm -hmm. There's just some kind of mystery about it. I loved the idea of it being still unsolved. Mm -hmm. How did all of these pieces come together and then what's the effect of that on a broader scale. From what I know about you, before you started working, even in the internship program at the Smithsonian, you were a historic interpreter at Mount Vernon. What was that like? Tell me about that. I decided to go to George Washington University in D.C., Graduate school is an expensive thing. That was 20 years ago now. It was yeah, expensive no then. It's more expensive now. It's a private school. I racked up more in graduate student debt in two years than I did in four years in costs even as an in-state student at the University of Michigan. And so looking at wow. the prospect of that, yeah. So I was trying to do something smart. Hey, what <laughs> practical job can I get that's going to earn me some money that I'm going to learn from and is in history? And at the time I was living just south of Mount Vernon in a town called Woodbridge and it made for an easy commute. I could just drive up route one, which is one of the Washington routes down south for the time that it lasted, which wasn't very long. It was a really difficult job to do. And so I really learned what it's like to work in the history field in this area, what it's like to really be put in one of the most visited places in the entire world, which set me up really nicely for how I would prepare to think about my current job at the Air and Space Museum. What that as a really high profile location means in a bigger sense. I took my job very seriously there. I'm an Americanist. I do not study international history. I very much am focused on the story of the U.S. And there's one or maybe a very small short list of people who really are the sort of figureheads of our history. And George Washington was one of them. And yeah. that's a, that's just an opportunity you don't pass up. I really wanted to get myself in a position to understand what a historic building would be like, what a, a historic environment is like, and it, not just on the museum side. The building itself is a museum. So there's a certain amount of reverence I've certainly had coming in. You get to do incredible jobs standing inside the Washington's bedroom. This is the bed on which George Washington, the founding father, died in. I think anybody who still has to do it probably agrees is if you're the last person on duty at George Washington's tomb, which includes Martha Washington, you actually have to take the flags inside the tomb and put them inside the door, which means you're actually physically next to their stone sarcophagus, I guess it is almost. And that's really eerie knowing that's where you are and that those are the remains there of this person. It's just really quite strange and surreal. Did you have any weird, I don't know, <laughs> otherworldly experiences? Jean? No, I didn't. I've been back there a few times since, and I don't think it's unheard of. I've had that kind of experience in an older building, but not in that particular building. Certainly on dark, stormy nights or days when it would get dark in there, definitely you hear the creaks. I'm more interested in the sounds of the building being eerie than I am <laughs> worrying about there being any kind of like spectral entities floating around. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not a huge fan of old houses, but thankfully there was no Martha Washington coming and 
tapping me on the shoulder or anything Floating crazy. down the stairs. <laughs> I've seen Ghostbusters enough, so. <laughs> get out of my kitchen. Right, right. That's funny. So I, then, So then you made the jump. You made the jump from working there to starting your internship at the Smithsonian yeah. or so did you actually strangely enough I was actually doing both of these things at the same time I wow. absolutely wow. went through torture I was living alone I had a dog I didn't really have I didn't owe anybody anything and so I said I could totally do two jobs at the same time so I was doing my internship during the week I was working maybe about 20 hours a week there. All the other days of the week, I would be working at Mount Vernon. And this is still early internet age. So Monster was probably just getting going. Finding jobs in museum work was pretty challenging. I used my departments at the university to try and help find things. I would get emails through my department about jobs that were open, especially at Smithsonian. By the time I graduated in May 2002, I had sent out 33 applications for jobs. I got three calls asking for an interview. One of them was at an automobile museum in California. And in looking practically at it, as I am usually disposed to do, I realized there's no way that what that job paid could ever have supported a lifestyle anywhere near where the museum was. California is just way too expensive, and that job paid way too little. And so I just said no thank you to an interview. And then there were two other calls I got. One was from a women's history museum here in the D.C. area, and another was from the Air and Space Museum. I had this vision in my mind of what I should be doing with the master's degree, and so to me, the job of assistant curator sounded appropriate. Essentially, I had more than a year experience because I'd been doing both at the same time, and I thought, why why would I want to do that job? And I thought, this is not what I'm supposed to do. The fact of the matter was, I do not like studying women's history. I have no attachment to it other than the fact that I am one. <laughs> the other job was in a space history department at the National Air and Space Museum. And of course, it's Smithsonian. And I think, wow, Smithsonian. So Smithsonian works on about a two-thirds federal funding basis. And the rest of it is made up through donations, endowments, mm. all kinds of other support. And my job, the money that was paying for me at the time was coming out of one of these endowments. And so it was a two-year position, but it was renewable. And all I could hope for was at the end, near, nearing the end of those two years, they'd think I'd done a good enough job to keep renewing me. And they renewed me. It's weird because a lot of Americans and just people in general don't really know how this works. Yeah. It's not, it's not too different than being a scientist and having mm -hmm. to have underwriting for that as well, or grants and things like that. Yeah. We um, are not in the lucky segment of the federal funding pie chart to get a big pot of money to work from. Smithsonian has always for its 175 years existed as a, what we call a quasi federal agency. And so we do have responsibilities to the federal government. We get government dollars, so taxpayer money, but our budget is tiny fraction of the entire federal spending. When you look at it against what you would think we get is definitely not what we get. A fraction of what even NASA gets, and NASA is a small fraction of the big pie. Yeah, I get that. And that kind of brings me to my next question. A lot of people don't really understand the relationship between the American government, NASA, and the Smithsonian. Yeah. In a quick sum up, how does yeah. it work? Well, going back to NASA's origins, there was a strong interest at the Smithsonian to bring that on board, going even farther back after World War II, when NASA is founded, and then in the early 60s, when people start going into space, there's 
this emerging interest in spaceflight generally, the government transitioned from it being called the National Air Museum to the National Air and Space Museum. So by the 1960s, that's where we existed as a museum. And not long after that, 1967, there's an arrangement made. It's essentially an agreement that allows us to be the primary collector of NASA materials. And so mm. the NASA-NASA agreement sets up this sort of interagency transfer program. When NASA is done using something, they have the ability to just transfer it directly to the Smithsonian. And so that's changed and mutated over the last 50 years or so. Um, I'm one of the main sort of connection points between NASA and the Smithsonian. And so I have lots of colleagues over at NASA headquarters in particular that we work with on thinking through things like what should we save from the International Space Station while we have the opportunity to do so. So what do we do before it is abandoned? Will it fall back to Earth? Will it come back? Yeah, it'll take take quite a while for that to happen. It's reasonably high. It'll take longer for the Hubble Space Telescope to come back because that's even farther out, but mm. it'll eventually come back. Skylab did the same thing in the 1970s. It was right, only was visited. Yeah, it was visited in, you know, in the early 70s, then it finally came back down in 79. So it'll take some time for that orbit to degrade, but they'll need to figure out where and when that will happen. And so we're a long ways from it though. And are there some things you can pull off of this thing and have yeah. there? Yeah, I mean, the space shuttle was a different era, and certainly even before that, because you're, you have a vehicle that's intention is to bring stuff back, but we built the International Space Station in orbit. We took the pieces there using a space shuttle and other Russian vehicles, but it was never intended to come back, but there's no reason that we can't kind of take bits and pieces of it and bring them back for the Smithsonian's collection or for other museums and be able to tell that story. And so we think a lot about how do we tell those stories and think ahead. And that's really where we are right now with so many things. NASA has a historian. They have historians at each of their centers. But we look at those things differently. We're not just historians. We're also curators, which means we add a layer in about historic artifacts and public outreach. And so what do those other layers give us to think about? And then we convey that to NASA and say, hey, we'd like X item because it helps us tell the huge audience that we get through our doors, yeah. this story. And that's kind of what makes sense. They are the ones that use these things. They are the ones that flew these things. Yep. And then when they're finished with it, let's polish it off. Let's make sure there's no radiation. And then where can we put it? <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah. People can see it. Like, yeah. And that's really, this. yeah, it's actually, it's really important in the case of the space shuttle because when those are retired in 2011, there's some toxic fuels that are used inside the space shuttle. And so the compartments that had those fuels in them needed to be completely removed. It's harmful to humans to be around those. So they are, those components are actually out in the Southwest desert, just baking because eventually that toxicity will decrease. And in theory, they could be reinstalled, but we were told you could never reinstall and have humans near them. (laughs) So that kind of goes against what the museum is meant to do. So that's true. Last time I was there, I pushed on it a little bit and it moved. So I know it was pretty light. (laughs) That's a big discovery. It's a big, beautiful vehicle. I'll tell you that. (laughs) It sure is. I got underneath it and photographed it. The photo's amazing. I was able to kind of get the camera under it with a flash Uh because those things are dark and you have to light them up. So I 
got the camera under discovery and just kind of photographed up and it just blew me away how each heat shield is so very different that that was really interesting to me yeah i i just had a conversation with the first female commander and pilot of space shuttle missions eileen collins this was just about 10 days ago and that was one of the things that we talked about is every single tile has a serial number and so when you're looking at the tiles you'll see this number and it is unique you would have to carry each and every tile up with you if you went and there's over 20,000 tiles, and that's definitely not going to happen. <laughs> no, not at all. Now, this is backwards. I'm looking at the tile numbers right now on my photo. That's crazy. It looks interesting. When you look at the photo, it's almost as if how the states fit together, especially yeah. out west. This looks like Nevada, and it's how it's <laughs> New Mexico. It's uh, ironic you say that because that's exactly how they think of the tiles joining together, they call it a map. So there is a literal map of tiles for each and every one of the vehicles. Yeah. And that's amazing. So we're going back to your build and it's interesting because working these two different jobs or having these two different positions you Mm -hmm. had, was there a point at which you started thinking about writing your book or was that just something that kind of happened as time passed? Yeah, I had said before, one of the things that I really wanted to do after I finished graduate school was just to have a job, to make money, to have something that was in a bank account. But I really wanted to have that feeling of I'm a very independent person normally. I just always had a sense I should be able to do things on my own. I wanted to have that. I did work a second job for a while to earn enough money to make up the difference because it's expensive to live in the D.C. area. (laughs) So it wasn't just about continuing on in what I was doing, but like, really, what is your goal? What is your career? goal. And by that time, I knew that what I really wanted out of a job, a career, and I never really wanted to think of it as a job, but really as a part of myself, is I wanted to be a museum curator. I wanted that title. I would get emails from museum curators. They were people I worked with. And I'd just see that on there and I'd be like, I want that. And to get that at the Smithsonian, the requirement really is to have a PhD. As you came into the Smithsonian, how do you feel like you were received? It took a little while for it to all sink in. But once I got going, I know I became a really trusted and valued member of my community. Even though I didn't have my PhD and most of the people I worked with did, I sat at the same lunch table and I learned a lot from people and I engaged in discussions and I learned really how to do the thing that as a PhD, you're really expected to do in that environment. And that doesn't mean just sitting and listening. That really means being active in the process. And so I was active in the process and I learned a lot of skills that are still valuable to me today about communication, especially. I was walking the line in between having knowledge about museum work and working with departments outside of my own. I play the role of mediator in a sense. But you wrote a wonderful book called Through Astronaut Eyes, and it was Mm -hmm. about this very subject. And the title even comes from, I believe, the Lindberghs, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Through the the Eyes of Astronaut. Yeah. She and Charles attended the launch of Apollo 8. She was a prolific writer about these experiences of being places, going places, meeting the people who were doing the thing. And so when I picked that up and I found the reference, I realized that phrase really communicates a lot about what they are as people, what the cameras are as pieces of technology, what the expectations were by anybody who was going to be on the other side of those photos. Well, what's interesting about 
your book is that it has this macro and then it also has a micro. The macro is the program itself as it moved forward. The micro is all of the steps along the way and the indecision and the decision in the process. And to me, that's what I found to be so fascinating about it. The history of how this happened is almost yeah. as important as what was done in the process. And to me, the process was, I mean, magnificent is the best way to describe it. It was just... Yeah. It was such a big deal. And, and from the outside looking in, these images, these cameras, these astronauts, these historians, these scientists, you know, mm-hmm. put this effort together and yeah. they went to the moon, but they decided to record it, to make yeah. it visible. And they didn't even understand as it was, was happening. And let me yeah. ask you a question. Did, do you think that NASA had any idea how important photographing these missions would become? So the first American went into space in 1961, and now we are in 2022. I'm not sure they understand it even today. NASA understood it from a point of view, and that is as technical information. They're mostly engineers, scientists. And so to them, a photograph or a video is a frame of film and it is meant to be used as data for something. They just didn't have the impact on the messaging. Really, the people who are working in photography at NASA are engineering photographers, meaning they know how to set up a camera to take maybe a series of images or a video to be able to study something. And Dick Underwood was one of those that tried to convey to them the things that an artist would look for. Think about composition, think about color, think about point of view and all the other things that are going to go into how an artist would think about it. Now he can tell them all that. He can do a training class. He can talk to them. They can learn how to use the cameras. It doesn't mean that it really had the impact. Well, and that's why I want to get it out there about this book. It's such a wonderful book and I want to get it out there because it's simple. If you love photography, you love cameras and you love NASA, then you got to go get this book. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I don't know if Armstrong actually only took seven photos. Do you remember how many? many. No, he was actually the primary photographer. I mean, that's one of the things that's always really hard to tell is like, when did the camera, I mean, they all had it, they had everything for us to say that Spaceflight is just this sort of random thing, and it seems from looking from the outside in, it looks like it's just sort of a, it, it's, it's, we can tell that it's planned, but you don't right. know how planned necessarily. And the reality is the plan is really detailed down to which images need to be taken. And so if you look at a and when, flight, and when. yeah, exactly, exactly when. And so there's, and all of their little checklists, there's always this running timeline on one side. And so that's why it always it irks me when people try to say that the Earthrise photo was a surprise to the crew, because you have to take that in context, which is, The Earthrise photo was a surprise because they hadn't, in the previous three orbits of the moon, had that point of view yet. So when the windows literally revealed it to them, of course you'd be surprised. I mean, it is the Earth. What was this on the fourth orbit, I believe? And they're coming around and coming around, and then all of a sudden you see it, and you're just impacted by what you're seeing. And that's why they were scrambling around, because they had so many other tasks they were doing at the same time. Absolutely. And Andrews grabs the quickest thing he can find, a black and white map. It as we called it in photography, we called it the back. And so mm-hmm. he's grabbing that. He puts black and white on. No, not black and white color. It's yeah, going to be color. And then right. he scrambles to get that. <laughs> and it's just amazing that, yeah. first of all, 
told me they were backwards and upside down, possibly, or just backwards. So the thing is, you have to take any image from space. Your reference point is always your feet. You know, you're always grounded, and therefore we have, unless you found a way to, you know, you can flip yourself upside down and all that stuff, but you're never going to be able to get away from the fact that gravity is holding you to the ground. When you're in space, that is no longer an issue. And so you can be at 90 degree angles from people and both of you are going to feel like you have your feet on the ground. One that would them, be something that would be disorienting to us, but they're used sure. to it. In yeah, one they fashion, adjust. Also, yeah. They adjust, yeah. but also realize how difficult this is because already just with a manual camera, I can tell you, having operated a Hasselblad ELM camera with manual lenses and everything else that's going on, how difficult it is just standing on earth shooting yeah. with that camera is already hard enough. And but so for them to be able to do this, it is really, really a feat. Yeah. For it's them a lot to be of coordination. Yeah, it's it a lot is. of coordination and practice and training. And so it wasn't something that was taken lightly. They had 16 millimeter movie cameras on board. They had television cameras that they would broadcast with. And those are all really to document the experience, the mission, the technical parameters. Because, of course, at the core of it all is the mission itself. And they're also trying to do four different things at the same time. They're trying to map the moon. They're trying to take photos for the rest of us. Yes. They're trying to look at certain craters and they're trying to yep. name them. But I I think, and you point this out in the book, is the idea of having to have all these things going on at the same time is demanding as the mission was. It's a miracle they got any of this done. And not did they just, not did they only do it, they did it in abundance. They were shooting like crazy up there. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a really tough job. And I think it's one of the things I came to appreciate about the complexity of the job. I mean, it seems looking from the outside that it is, it must be just a lot of fun, but it is something that does require an incredible amount of training and preparation and coordination. And even today on the space station, people do not do anything without consulting with others. We've always heard about it from the Apollo program is it really does rely on the people on the ground to make it happen and continue. And so the astronauts are in constant communication and the digital transformation that's happened in the last few decades really reshapes how much NASA can do. And it reshapes how they do it too. Not having to carry film backs into space inside lockers, which is what their containers are, really changes the dynamic of what and how and how much they can do yeah. in terms of photography. Every astronaut I've ever talked to said it was one of their favorite jobs to do because it gives them the time to think about what they're seeing, photography to them feels a little bit like a pastime, a hobby, something that's just for fun. It's not really the job. Interesting. It kind of gave them a little bit of a break, maybe. It does. And there's going to come a time, presumably, if Artemis gets underway and continues to increase its capabilities, that we're going to see people go all the way out to Mars. Take a while to get there. Who in particular do you think amongst the astronauts were actual photographers? One of those would be Alan Bean. Alan Bean was an artist, a budding artist throughout his days as a pilot and then as a, an astronaut. And then when he flew on Apollo 12, he got it in his head that this was going to be an opportunity for him to create some photographs that then he would go and paint later. The thing that was really sad about his experience is, one, he broke his TV camera by pointing it at the sun accidentally. So there goes a lot of imaging that could have happened. But the other thing is he had the staff that the NASA put a timer in the bag that was going to go with them <laughs> out to this Surveyor 3 lander that they were going to visit on Apollo 12. 
And the idea was he was he'd be able to run and jump into the picture with Pete Conrad and they would be in the picture together. And it'd be the first time that two astronauts had been seen on the moon because they didn't do that on Apollo 11. And so he, he couldn't great, find it. He and couldn't, he couldn't find, find it. it. So what I love about the story is that there is a somewhat of a happy ending in that when he got back to Earth, eventually he painted his vision of it. So... He imagined it in his head. Some of the astronauts practiced more than others, and I take that as a genuine sign of them Mm -hmm. thinking through what it is they wanted to do and how they needed to do it. Warden was a friend of mine who I had met through the museum. He was the astronaut who stayed on the command module during Apollo 15, and he took his job as a photographer very seriously. So basically... He'd go through rolls of film, he'd take them back, NASA would develop them, and he cataloged his own images to be able to understand, okay, I held this one here, therefore I'm going to get this kind of effect from it. Tell us how difficult it was to use these cameras, to operate these cameras with spacesuits in space. Like, how hard was this? They definitely had problems. We have our own problems with this historical collection. There were definitely issues during flight. I would say, based on my research, there were fewer problems with the Hasselblads than there were with the 16-millimeter movie cameras that they had. Those malfunctioned. Mm, Those malfunctioned quite a bit, and that was malfunctions pre-flight and during flight, and it was very frustrating for the astronauts because things would go wrong, and they'd need to, then in the end, they brought back more of those than they had planned on bringing, because when something malfunctions in space, then you want to find out why, and so that was the thing with the Hasselblads, is they had a kind of consistency to them with the company, with the actual proven design that they had, at least at that point, and the sort of, the develop in the development development process, they were able to help have this offshoot of what they were developing for the commercial market that would really be geared towards them. So we need to remove all kinds of things from it. You don't want a lot of glass. You don't want mirrors. You don't want lubricants that will freeze. You don't want... So obviously you can't remove all glass from a camera. That's kind of impossible, but they're going to make it as safe as possible. So you don't end up with, say, something bumping into something and then you've got shards of glass everywhere. You can't have that happening. Floating around in space. Yeah, bad idea. You don't want want sparks in space. You also don't want pieces Mm. of glass or debris in space. Pieces break. I mean, these things are all fragile and that's the thing. I mean, if you have an iPhone, most likely you know somebody who's dropped it and either the front or the back has completely shattered. Right. Seem to hit a certain age point and then they all start just kind of crumbling somehow in terms of either the screen getting cracked or them slowing down or just doing crazy things that you can't explain. You know this from our discussions, but my thing has been spacesuits. Will I write a book on it? Maybe not write (laughs) a book on it, but I might have a coffee table book on it one day. But my thing is spacesuits. And so the early spacesuits, same thing. They were made of leather with aluminum I believe alloy sprayed on top. I think that's right. Yeah, there's an aluminum coating on the outside of those. I mean, they're inspired by flight suits that had existed for pilots and mostly military. And that's eventually, yes, the idea of painting something silver eventually is very important. And that comes when you're trying to 
insulate something or protect it from heat. And so the Hasselblads go through that. The ones that are used mm. on the moon are silver for a reason. That's right. That's right. The astronaut spacesuits have layers of mylar in them. The lunar module is covered in foil, and there's multiple reasons for that, too. And I think in people's minds, they're like, oh, my gosh, spacesuit made out of leather. But you have to understand also the earliest flights were only up for minutes or uh, yeah. you know, a full Hours. day. They weren't up for yeah. a week. They weren't up for no, you know, no. 10 days or anything like that. So that's part of it. Yeah, um, there's a lot of, and that's one of the things I like too about my collection and the collection of the Smithsonian generally is that we have been able to collect through the years a lot of the stuff that was successful and used in space. Of the infamous cameras that you have either in the collection or that you have got spread out across different museums, I mean, where are they all at? Are most of them at the Smithsonian mm-hmm. DC or are they the four winds or where are yeah. they? Yeah. So the photography collection is about 550 pieces of camera equipment. And that's everything from little tripods to color charts to lenses and everything else. That's just a drop in the bucket, though. Yeah. The real collection is held by the Kansas Cosmosphere in Hutchinson, Kansas, which is one of our very close partner museums. But when we couldn't take things on in the 1990s, before my time, they were able to take on about 1,500 artifacts. There are some things, and this is sort of a classic story at this point, too, is that some of the astronauts took home souvenirs. And so a few cameras have made it out into the public domain and into private collections, but individuals that are not the federal government or a museum. They have an Apollo 14 camera, which is the very first Hasselblad that returned from the moon, mm-hmm. the surface of the moon. And so it is beautiful. We had it on display as part of an exhibit in 2015, but it's in their collection. And I'm not going to try and steal too many <laughs> things from them, but we have a way of transferring items between museums. So when you come to the museum now for the reopening in just a few weeks, you'll be able to see the camera that captured Earthrise on display. Unbelievable. That's so exciting. I'm excited about that because I'm coming soon there myself, hopefully. (laughs) It's a great collection and a great set of people that we work with there. We work with them all the time. They've done a number of projects that you would have heard of. They were heavily involved in helping recreate objects for the movie Apollo 13. They actually have Apollo 13, the spacecraft, on loan from us, but it's on display there. And we work. There it is. That's what you had to trade to get the Earthrise camera. I get it now. I've been there for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just joking. So, where are all the Apollo 11 cameras anyway? Good question. So, most Apollo 11 artifacts that went to the lunar surface stayed on the lunar surface. So, the Hasselblad that Neil Armstrong used, the camera itself was left behind, as were the backpacks that they used, the boots. Most of the other stuff was all left behind. That was not a practice that was always gained or adhered to. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And if you've ever seen Apollo 13, anybody who's seen that knows that there's an issue of weight where the rock samples then need to be balanced out with anything that can be gotten rid of in the process of getting ready to take off from the moon because they only have so much fuel. So in all of that, yes, that was designated to stay behind. They only brought the magazines back. What was left was the camera that Michael Collins was using on board Columbia. And so that camera is in our collection and is almost always on display with our Apollo 11 collection and I believe will be visible in the Destination Moon Gallery coming up soon. That's exciting to see, too. And now, now I remember it was Colin's camera, whose camera that took Neil Armstrong's photo with the Snoopy helmet on. It was his. Mm-hmm. 
that that, that adds up. That adds up. Well, <laughs> how about one of the questions then? When Artemis goes back, can they pick up the Apollo 11 camera? Uh, in theory, that's possible. That's been part of the discussion for many years. The cool thing is we've already got great pictures. True. There are satellites that orbit the moon and have taken wonderful, very detailed, very high-resolution images of each of the landing sites. And so in a sense, we don't need to. It's just that we sent a vehicle there to do it for us. And is there really any value in it disturbing that space? I think for the most part, there's really agreement now that they are their own historic sites, each of the landing mm. sites on the moon. And so there'll be some, I think, some distance given to those in a sense. Mm. There'll be, you cannot approach within a certain distance because you'd be disrupting historic footprints. Because guess what? All the footprints are all still where they are. And that's one of the most amazing that's things so that you crazy. can see is in an overhead view from a satellite, you can actually see the tread marks of the rovers and you can see the footprint trail so that cool. they left. I'm officially um, nerding the, out on this yeah, side of the microphone. No, it's really one of the amazing things about the capabilities of cameras, and I mean still cameras in particular, aboard orbiting vehicles. If you know anything about orbiting satellites and you think, well, if I can turn one towards the moon, what could you learn in the other direction? I mean, we all know about Google Earth and Google Maps and all of that. Yeah, you can see some pretty detailed stuff in those images. And so it's similar. You can turn a camera on the moon and you can see the footprints that they made on those missions. That's amazing. Well, I mean, I hope they go back, but I understand only in reverence that it's kind of like disturbing a right. Titanic or something. You know what I mean? Yep. It's almost like you don't go, you don't disturb that. I get that. Part of me is also, can yeah. we get the camera back? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it would be great. It'd make a great display object in a museum. Yep. Oh, gosh. But it's Trust probably me. not worth the risk. It's probably not worth the risk, but I know yep. I know they've heard the, what do you call it, the request. So we know that they've heard the request. <laughs> so if it if they... Have it to have it, but I, I'm with you. I feel like you don't need yeah. to disturb it. Right. And so to me, from when I started reading your book to when I stopped, I changed my opinion as I read the book further. What do you think is the overall message of Through Astronaut's Eyes? I think the message that I'm trying to send is that astronauts needed to serve many purposes. They still do. They always will. And that's because it is an incredibly rare thing to do. So all of us will always, I would say for the foreseeable future, and that means even a hundred years in the future, we're only going to see these things through astronaut eyes. I think that's why Earthrise and the whole Earth image really become this all-encompassing moment for people to be able to reflect on the capability of doing this different point of view, to see it from that distance. My favorite is just that this is the moment, this really does capture the moment when people first saw earth from the orbit of the moon with their own eyes yeah. not even That's through the camera it's with their own eyes as bill anders described it during the years following his mission on apollo 8 he's talked about it being this fragile blue orb hanging in the blackness of space and I think that's what I would like people to come away from the book realizing is that they had to be scientists, they had to be explorers, they had to be engineers, they had to be pilots, they had to be doctors in some case because they had to take care of each other when they got sick. They have to be your average tourist. They have to be thinking about all of the audiences, their government employees. They are all of these things all at once, and it's only three of them. And so it's very, very different from what had happened before and it's in a very different, deadly environment. It is not a place humans are meant to be. It is not built for us. And so we need to treat that as a very special and unique thing. And they had to be photographers. <laughs> Absolutely. Going forward, how 
excited are you about Artemis and and just for all of us, but also how about just being excited for this mission representing women? I'm not really a women's historian by any means, but this is one moment as a woman that I'm super excited to see happen in part because it, we already have a sense of who that woman could be. And that's exciting to actually be able to start to think about who the face is, yeah. what their background is. I've communicated with a few of them and I know they're thinking about it quite a bit and really excited for the opportunity. I've been holding off on getting excited because it is a very challenging, expensive proposition. And I just want to feel a little more comfortable with things. You know, it's funny. You do sound like a photographer, actually, because that's, <laughs> that's how I approach almost every one of my shoots, especially with celebrities. Yeah. I'll see it when I see it. It has potentially disastrous consequences if you take it lightly. Yeah. So, And that's the thing that's really hard to think about. But looking at the shuttle, if you look at Artemis, there's a lot in common. And yeah. how does that happen? So the boosters look just like the ones on the shuttle. The tank that on top of it is where the capsule sits on Artemis. The fuel tank pretty much looks the same. It's orange. Yeah. It's got the insulation just like this one mm. did. There's a lot in common. How do you take what you have and what you need and put them together into something that works? And I think that's where the real hiccup is right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope it goes well. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm with you. I want it to be done right. <laughs> exactly. Last thing. Why do we need to do this? What does the journey to the moon or the journey to space say about the human race? What can we learn by doing these things? So there's always been this sort of saying that the reason we go to space is because humanity has an urge to explore and discover. And I don't necessarily buy into that particular way of thinking. What I do buy into is that we always ask questions. Yeah. We always have something that we're trying to understand. So that involves asking questions. And I try to teach this to my children. You're not going to learn anything unless you ask a question. And so that's what historians do is we have a question that we want to answer. And that's what leads to an article, to a book, to a blog post, whatever writing we do or whatever research we do, we're trying to answer something. Mm. And I think that's a metaphor for the sort of bigger picture of what spaceflight is about, but also what we do as people is when we see something in front of us that we can't decipher. We have to ask a question in order to then get over that not knowing. And I think we just inherently are curious. And I think that's yeah. really what it gets down to is that we just have this curiosity about life, about the universe, about humanity. Some people are more curious than others. There's just degrees to which our brains engage that way. That's why we're doing this podcast to begin with. One of my favorite <laughs> one of my favorite photographers who's actually been on the podcast, her name is Sig Harvey. She said that as photographers, our currency is time. Mm. And and I love that. I love that's that. That's a great so much. way of looking at it. Yeah. I, and I think I that's it's definitely compatible with the way that astronauts do things is they mm -hmm. are very aware of time. You have a limited amount of time. And time measurement is incredibly important for everything that they do. In fact, their schedules are measured in increments of five minutes. Yeah. Um, that's like seems like such a teeny amount of time, but that's just how precious it is. And they have to be efficient about it because it's limited. You still have the passion for being yep. a curator and you still love your job. And Absolutely. 
Yeah. And I love I mine it, too. <laughs> yeah. I hope it comes across to people when I meet them too and do podcasts. I'm the second space shuttle curator at the Smithsonian. There will be many after me as well. And so being yeah. part of that story to me and part of Discovery's story, you want to feel like you've made an impact in the world before you leave it. Having a badge that says Smithsonian on it is just ridiculous. There's not that many people that get to do that job either. So that's true. Special. It sure is. Well, Thank you for spending time with us today, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure to get to talk about all the crazy things that I get myself involved in. (laughs) Hey, guys. Clayton Clark here, producer of the Photo Untaken podcast. And I got to say, wow, we got to give it up to Dr. Jennifer Lavasser for that amazing, amazing episode. If you want to support her, make sure and check out her book, through astronaut eyes thank you so much for listening today make sure and stay tuned we have a lot of great content coming soon make sure and also check out alanclarkphotography.com and go to photo career academy great content is on there for you guys in order to capture the full experience you definitely need to visit thanks for listening